probably 6 through 11 of chapter 4. So hear the word of the living God, Hebrews chapter 3, starting at verse 1. I'm going to read all the way through chapter 4, verse 11. Here's the word of God. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confession and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, quote, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. End quote. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, quote, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, end quote. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was He provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did He swear that they would not enter His rest, but to those who were disobedient? And so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Chapter 4, Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, quote, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, end quote. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works, and again in this passage he said, quote, they shall not enter my rest, end quote. Therefore, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news fail to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. And so then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest 
has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall fall by the same sort of disobedience. This is the word of the living God. May he write its truths on our hearts and let's pray together. Father, we come to you to ask your blessing over the word in our hearts today. And as we've read it from your pages, I pray, God, that you would open our eyes to understand it. Open our ears to listen with a leaning to obey. Let us humble ourselves today before you and your word. And would you grow us and lead us ultimately into Sabbath rest. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please have a seat. Anybody tired today? (laughs) Man, he worked all night, he told me before the service, so he's a little tired. I said, we're going to talk about rest, so don't fall asleep. Anybody else tired? Maybe you're up a little bit, yeah? I get it. We had like 30 young people at our house yesterday, and Alan and I were on the grill for three hours, grilling carne asada, and I'm a little tired, but, so, so we're talking about rest today. But ultimately, it's not so much that type of tiredness, even though there's aspects of that that speak to what we're talking about today. But when, when we think of physical weariness, it also is helpful for us to, to understand, more importantly, the weariness of the soul, right? The weary world that we live in. There's this weariness that we all experience that reminds us that we're not in the promised land yet. There's a a sort of jet lag of the soul. God's people often feel it. Whether it's from from feeling the the oppression of the soul as as the spirit of the age increases, as lawlessness seems to abound. You ever just look out at the world and and you're just weary with seeing how how dark it can be? How how far away it it seems from God and how much worse it just kind of seems to get? Darkness that comes and just grates against our convictions as believers and followers of Christ. Or perhaps it's a weariness in fighting our own sin. The thoughts of, am I ever going to overcome in this life? Am I going to overcome this struggle I've had for years? It seems to keep coming up. Will I ever find rest? And it seems like it's just an unending battle. And the war, the war against our own sin, the war against all the cares and pressures of, of life war on us, and, and we get tired. We get tired just trying to do good, right? You ever grown tired? That's why the, the biblical encouragement is don't grow weary in doing good. Why do you think we'd have to hear that reminder? Because it's really easy for us to get tired and grow weary of doing good. And we want to give up. Let alone the anxiousness and the angst and the pain and the suffering and, and, the, and the unceasing hurry and the hustle and bustle of life. It just seems endless. And here comes the Word of God promising rest. Sabbath rest. 
So today we're going to look at what that means. And, and again, we're going to really do a flyover of, of much of the storyline of the Bible, starting all the way at the beginning. Five points that will show us this this morning. It's one, Sabbath rest is established in creation. Secondly, that Sabbath rest was forfeited in the fall. Thirdly, that Sabbath rest is restored in redemption. <clears throat> Sound familiar? Anybody? There you go, right? It's the storyline of the Bible. Fourthly, that Sabbath rest is fulfilled in Jesus. And fifthly, we'll close with some application of how we should practice Sabbath rest. So point number one, Sabbath rest is established in creation. And we're going to get to the Hebrews text, but you're going to have a really long intro, okay? So the first few points are intro before we jump back into the Hebrews passage. Because how many of you just read that with me, that long chapter 3 and part of chapter 4, and we're like, huh? So, so we need some background. We need to understand some things first before we get there. So it's, where do we start? We start at the beginning. Genesis 1. It begins with darkness and, and chaos and disorder. And then what does God do? He speaks to bring about order. He speaks to bring light. He speaks that life would flourish. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And we read throughout Genesis 1 this account of the, the six days of creation, and, and each day of creation is marked with a particular phrase. It's the phrase, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day, and so on, all the way through to the sixth day, which is helpful for us to understand when you think of the Jewish day, the Hebrew day, it starts when? It starts at sundown in the evening, and it goes all the way till the next day. So when there was evening and there was morning, that was what makes up a day. So we have six days of this, six days of creation. On the sixth day, God creates man and, 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 and breathes the breath of life into him. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And then we come to something very special. Something happens on day seven, the seventh day. What happens? Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, and on the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. And so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. A very unique and special thing happens. God stops and rests. God shabbats. That's the word. That's the Hebrew word here. God shabbats. It means to cease or to stop. It's where we get our word Sabbath from. God sabbaths. Why? This is the first mention of, of rest here in the Bible. It's found in Genesis chapter 2, and it's describing God's resting, His ceasing or His stopping after the work of creation. So the, mean, the meaning of this is, is not that God is stopping to take a nap because He's tired. He's not stopping to, to take a day off because, man, whew, those six days have been really difficult. This is foundational for us understanding what Sabbath rest is in the first place, and it's that God entered into a time of triumphant fullness, of, of triumphant completion. 
of, of peace, ultimate peace and, and a celebratory joy and this glorious satisfaction of stepping and back and looking at all that he had done and that all that he had done was good and right and perfect. This is what God, what the Scripture speaks of when it speaks of, of Shabbat, of, of rest. It's this idea of completeness, of, of fullness, of fullness of joy and peace and satisfaction and all of these wonderful gifts. This is found ultimately in God Himself. And so creation is brought to its completion here on the seventh day. Remember that, the seventh day. Number seven is actually a pretty big deal in the Bible. As you read through the Scriptures, you'll, if, if you study hard, you'll notice some multiple repeated, repeated patterns. And in, in biblical Hebrew, the word seven is actually connected to this idea of fullness or completeness. So seven, in essence, is the number of completeness. And that is something we all desire, we all long for, but how often do we actually really experience it instead it seems like we find ourselves working endlessly and and fighting back the the chaos with without real rest on the seventh day God's rests he shabbats his presence fills his creation he's created everything and he's created it good including man and humans are then appointed to rule the world with God forever. We see in Genesis 2.15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him. That word put him is actually a word that, that's a, one of the biblical Hebrew words that means rest. It's nuach. So in essence, you could say God rested the man in the garden. For what purpose? To work it and to keep it. And there's a whole other lesson there in understanding where our labor is to proceed from. It's to proceed from a resting in God. And so he, puts, he, he rests Adam in the garden, and out of that he's set about on his mission to work and to keep the garden. In Genesis 1.28 it says that God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the establishment of Sabbath rest. God rested. Secondly, we move into another time period in biblical history where we see very quickly after creation, Sabbath rest was forfeited in the fall. Adam and Eve are deceived. They sin. They eat of the forbidden fruit and they fall. They forfeit that rest. We read about that in Genesis chapter 3. And then they're exiled, if you will, out of the garden. They are kicked out of the garden. They're exiled into the wilderness. In chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 23, it says, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So they're removed, they're exiled to the garden where then they have to work as, as slaves, if you will, to this land that won't stop growing thorns and thistles. In verse 17, And to Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. 
In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. For how long? Until they die and return to dust. Verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So we see this glorious picture of God on the seventh day resting, entering into His rest, and now dwelling with man in this glorious temple of creation where He he puts man as His vice-regent to rule over the earth, and then man sins, and it's all broken. It all falls apart. And now Sabbath rest is gone. And in comes strife and anguish and pain and suffering, thorns and thistles, sin and the greatest enemy, death. Sabbath rest is forfeited then in the fall. Thirdly, we see Sabbath rest restored in redemption. See, God... God loves us. He loves His creation. He loves His image bearers. And His plan is to restore humanity back to that Sabbath rest. And He begins doing that by choosing a man by His own free will. God's sovereign grace, He just simply chooses Abraham and calls him to Himself and says, you're my guy. And he tells him in Genesis chapter 12, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'll show you and I'll make of you a great nation and I'll bless you and I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Notice the purpose of the blessing of God was to be a blessing to everyone around. I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I'll curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so we see this family grow. We see it grow into the 12 different tribes, the 12 sons, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then 12 sons. And and then they they end up in Egypt because of the famine. We're fast-forwarding now quickly. But here they are, the the family of God, the people of God, and and they're in Egypt, slaves to an oppressive empire who's, who's grinding them into the dust. How in the world... Are they going to get any Sabbath rest there? Exodus chapter 1 in verse 8 tells us that there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. So come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. Verse 13 says, So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So here are the people of God. Slaves in Egypt. And so what does God do? He confronts Egypt and he frees the slaves. He liberates Israel. We read about that in Exodus chapter 7 through 11. 
He leads them out of Egypt. He leads them to cross the Red Sea through the waters. They go through the waters and Pharaoh's army is destroyed. The Egyptians are killed in the midst of the Red Sea. They're delivered. There's this great, massive, beautiful deliverance and now they're on the other side in the wilderness. But they're on the way to the promised land. But they're in the wilderness. And in the wilderness, it can be easy to to stumble, to easy to lose your way, right? Life is a struggle. They're, they're not in the land of rest yet, and yet God wants to still bless them with a taste of His Sabbath rest. And so God invites them while they're in the wilderness to, to start living as if they're in the promised land. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 4, He says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, you shall be My treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is Mine. And you shall be to Me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. What a gift. What a blessing. And a part of that blessing amongst many others, is this gift of Sabbath. This gift of ceasing, of stopping, of rest. God tells them that every seventh day, they're to stop their work. Or in Hebrew, they are to Shabbat. Why? So they can rest and remember God's good work and enjoy God's good world. We find the commandment in Exodus 20, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord. Notice it's to the Lord. You could, you could phrase that it's a Sabbath of the Lord. It's God's Sabbath. It's like a gift that He's giving them. Not, not simply a commandment to lay a burden on them. He's given them a gift. On it, He says, you shall do not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. Now listen to the purpose of why he's given them this gift. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh. Remember that from creation? God entered into his Sabbath rest and now he's saying, I want you to taste that. But we're in the wilderness. Yeah, taste it. And every time you practice this, you get a taste of this ultimate reality that's coming. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. In Deuteronomy 5, we see a repetition of the commandment in, in verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord. It belongs to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock. So now he's bringing in the animals and the servants and the slaves. And he goes on and says, uh, or the sojourner who's with you in your gates, the stranger. Bring in the stranger. Everybody gets rest. You shall remember part of the command. Why am I doing this? Because you need to remember something. What do you need to remember? You were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there. 
with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. In Leviticus 23, verse 3, it tells him, Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It's a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. So what's the thrust? The the thrust is take a whole day to remember where you came from and who delivered you and worship Him. And live as if that ultimate rest has already come. Cease from your labors. And this is the Sabbath. It's celebrated every week on the seventh day. The Sabbath was a big deal to God. I kind of feel like I'm going into a commercial mode, infomercial. But wait, there's more. Because there is. This is a gift. But wait, there's more. The Sabbath is just one of seven festivals that Israel practice every year. How many? Seven. Each one was anticipatory of the ultimate Sabbath rest. We had the Passover. You can read all these in Leviticus chapter 23. The Passover, which, which is remembering and celebrating how the death angel passed over those who had the blood applied. Hint, hint. <laughs> the, uh, uh, the unleavened bread, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which remembers how they had to leave Egypt in a hurry and so they didn't have time to leaven their bread and so they would, they would pra- celebrate this seven-day feast that started right after the day of the start of Passover. The, the, the first fruits, Feast of First Fruits, one of three harvest feasts. The Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. The Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths, all of these, I mean, we could do lessons on each one and, and you'd be amazed. And they all point to Jesus, by the way. And so it's it's amazing thing, but God gives them the gift of Sabbath, and then He gives them the gift of these seven annual feasts to put in their calendar. But wait, there's more. Every seven years, the Israelites also were to let the land rest for a whole year. You read about that in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 1 through 7. The land itself was to get a Sabbath and rest. Now, well, what, what about that seventh year? What if we don't get enough food? I'm going to bless you. Trust me. I'm going to give you enough for many years. All of this. You see what God's doing? He wants His people to trust Him. He wants them to depend on Him, not on themselves. So you have the Sabbath day. You have the seven feasts. You have the the seventh year. But wait, there's more. Then you have seven times seven, which is what, you mathematicians? 49, on the 50th year, you had the year of Jubilee. Leviticus 25. And in the year of Jubilee, if anyone in Israel had lost their land or if they'd gone into debt, all was forgiven. All was cleared up. Everything was restored. It's an incredible celebration of this fullness of restoration. And and if you came down on a really, really hard time and you had to sell yourself into slavery, guess what happens on the year of Jubilee? You're free. 
I can't afford the house payment. We're, we're, we got into debt and we lost our house. Guess what happens in Jubilee? You get it back. It's an amazing gift that God gave His people. You got the Sabbath. You got the feast. The year of Jubilee. It's all pointing to something. This hope of future rest. Or maybe I should say it's all pointing to someone. When the Israelites went into the land, they finally went into the promised land But what happened? Did they enter rest? (laughs) They forgot their God. And so they forfeited their chance to rest in the promised land. Ultimately, we see that after multiple attempts of God calling His people to repent of sending prophets, they would not listen. They were stubborn and rebellious. And so they're exiled and enslaved again by an oppressive nation. They're they're led back into, if you will, the wilderness of disorder and darkness. And yet we read throughout the prophets in the Old Testament that Israel's prophets told them that their exile would one day end and that the ultimate jubilee of, of freedom and rest would come. You see it in Jeremiah, and you see it in Isaiah. Let me, a couple, you might be familiar with these. Verse 11 of Jeremiah, I know, uh, to, uh, Jeremiah 29, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you'll call upon me and come and pray to me, and I'll hear you. You'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I'll be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. I'll bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. What a gift. What a word of truth. Or Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so the people of God in Israel, they returned from exile. They rebuild the temple. And yet, they never entered true Sabbath rest. Hundreds of years go by. And Jesus comes on the scene. Number four, Sabbath rest is fulfilled in Jesus. It was dark. It was silent. It was a wilderness. And in the midst of this darkness, the light shines. Jesus comes on the scene. He appears. He launches His public mission Guess what day? On a Sabbath. And on the Sabbath, he gets up in the synagogue and he opens the scroll to Isaiah 61. Luke chapter 4 records this for us in verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. 
because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It says he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were were fixed on him and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What does he mean? What is he saying in reading from Isaiah 61 when he says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor? He's talking about the ultimate jubilee. He's talking about the ultimate rescue. He's claiming that the ultimate Sabbath rest would come through Him. That He's the mediator of the covenant. That He's the fulfillment of it all. He's talking about Himself as the Jubilee. He's claiming some incredible claims here. That He he would confront darkness in all of its forms. He would liberate people from from sickness and, and sin and even from death itself. And he would die himself on a Roman cross. And so it would seem to the Jews of the time that everything he said was meaningless and his work was left undone. It sure would seem that way. But notice a couple things. Notice how Jesus first timed his death. He timed his death to take place at the end of the week. John 19, since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, talking the time of Passover, when the lamb was slain, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So Jesus dies on the cross. His he's body rested in the tomb on the Sabbath, during the Sabbath, and on the eighth day He rose again from the dead. On a Sunday, the new day of the week. Matthew records it this way in chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week. The eighth day. The first day of a a new week. Jesus' resurrection, what, what this is telling us is that His resurrection was like the first day of a brand new creation. Where God's life would broke through death. God's light broke into and through the darkness. Ultimately pointing to us that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, we have full assurance of hope of a future rest. Of an ultimate Sabbath rest. But we're not there yet, are we? You ever feel like you're still in the wilderness? You're struggling, you have pain, suffering, difficulty, dealing with, with sin. And so we come to that, we come to Hebrews then. So flip back to Hebrews. And there's two, Hebrews is an incredible book, a letter. It's just, a, man, it's so great. But there's two chapters here in the letter to the Hebrews that talk about rest in particular. We, we read the passage at the beginning, and really it's a, it's, a, it's a massive, beautiful culmination of this whole theme of Sabbath rest. So the letter to the Hebrews, we're not sure who wrote it, lots of different opinions, we're not sure, but the, the basic flow of the letter is that it's a pastor writing to a congregation of, of Greek-speaking Messianic Jews. 
So these are Jewish people, and the way that he references the Old Testament, the amount of competency that he assumes on the part of the listener and the reader is is very clear he's writing to a very Jewish audience. And so they understand these things that we have to like dig into and study more. So you might, if you ever read through Hebrews, and if you, if, if you just read the passage we read in 3 and 4, and you're like, what in the world is he talking about? Buckle your seatbelt for just a few more minutes. <clears throat> in essence, the point of Hebrews is he's trying to encourage them and compel them not to abandon their faith in Jesus, their allegiance to Jesus as Messiah. Why? They're experiencing persecution and hardship, and they're feeling like it's a lot easier just to go back. You know, and sometimes that's true for, for us as a people, or at least it seems true. It, we're tempted to like, like get into a legalism where if I just keep the rules, I'll be better. Give me a rule I can follow. I'll follow a rule. No, you can't. Apart from Christ, you can't. So all of this, he's saying, don't give up. Don't give like up. It's like a hammer pounding. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. Why? Because Jesus is better. Chapter 1 and 2, Jesus is better than the divine council and the angels and all the spiritual heavenly beings. In, in 3 and 4, Jesus is better than Moses and Joshua. In chapter 5, Jesus is better than Aaron, the whole priesthood. He's better than all the tabernacle and, and, and all of the feast. And so in chapter 3, he comes kind of like a new beginning here in, in the first verse of chapter 3 where he says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Get your eyes on Jesus. Think about Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. So he's making this comparison, right, to Moses, and he's not dogging Moses out. <coughs> Some people think that. He's actually saying Moses was incredible. But if you think Moses was incredible... <laughs> He says, Moses was faithful in all God's house. Verse 3, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast. Again, there's that encouragement. Hold fast to our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So Moses is faithful. Jesus was more faithful. Moses built the tabernacle and he was faithful. Jesus is building a tabernacle out of all of us. More faithful. He, he, and so the admonition is, so follow him. Follow him. And then that's just the first step. So he, he goes next level, actually, starting in, in verse 7. Chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Okay, what is going on here? He's bringing a new idea in the mix here, and he, he's bringing up, he, 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 he does a long block quote, if you will, where he quotes from Psalm 95. That's the quote that's going on here. And he doesn't quote from the first part. He quotes from the second part. 
He starts in verse 7 of Psalm 95, which, which says this, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. As at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. And so the word here, rebellion, is going somewhere. He's alluding back to, to this narrative where the people begin fighting with Moses, Moses, arguing, contending with Moses, and ultimately with God in the wilderness. The, the, the noun there is meribah, which means contention. And testing is, is a noun that means massah. And so massah and meribah, these are the two stories of the Torah where Israel's rebels, the, the, Israel rebels against God in the manner of manna and water in the wilderness. Do you remember those stories, if you know your Bible? Exodus chapter 17. Oh, thank you, brother. Thank you much. Exodus chapter 17 is where you find it. In verse 10 of Hebrews, he says, For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath. Excuse me, of Psalm 95. I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. What he's saying is your, your ancestors, in quoting this, your ancestors tested and tried me for 40 years. I kept providing for them. I kept giving them everything they needed. They saw what I did, and they refused to believe. They refused to trust. They doubted me. And so I was angry with that generation. Their hearts had gone astray. And so I swore something, God says. I swore that they'll never enter my rest. He draws a line. What is this rest? In the context of what Psalm 95 is speaking of, it harkens back to the Old Testament stories and narratives of the entrance into the promised land. They'll never enter my rest. <clears throat> and so they're not going into the promised land. And we know from that story that that whole generation died. And another generation finally came in. But I'm curious as you read this, as I read this, instead of just pointing to the wilderness narrative, which the author of Hebrews could have really done, he quotes Psalm 95, which speaks of the wilderness narrative. Why? Why would he quote Psalm 95 like what seems like out of nowhere? It's because he wants to talk about rest. He's trying to hammer home a point about rest. He's been talking about Moses and then he's going to bring up all the stuff about rest. But instead of just talking about the wilderness narrative, he begins to quote Psalm 95. Again, why? And this is really fascinating. Follow along with me. Psalm 95 actually begins with, and I believe he assumes this in the hearers of his, of his letter. They're good Jews. They know Psalm 95. And so when he quotes the second part of it, they know the first. We don't. Here's the first, oh, come, let us sing to the Lord, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving, let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. And so he begins by saying that God is called the rock of salvation. Let's praise the rock of our salvation what is that? What is the rock? How is God the rock of salvation? And what does that even mean? 
Well, the psalm goes on to say in verse 3, For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. And then he goes deeper and goes to the cosmos. Verse 4, In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are, all, are his also, the sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Everything you see, up, down, all around, it's all his. Verse 6, Oh, come, let's worship and bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hands. And so all of it is His. All, all, of, all the work of creation and bow down and, and worship Him. And then He made us His own sheep of His pasture. How did he do that? How, how did he make his people a sheep of his pasture? He is our Elohim. He is our God. We're the people of his pasture. We're the flock that he cares for, David is saying in Psalm 95. Well, when did God create a flock of his people? I think what David is doing is, as scriptural authors often do, they go back and they go back and they go back. I think we're meant to remember the Exodus story here because that is how God recreated his people he brought them out of exile out of slavery out into the wilderness and then out of the wilderness into the land of promise and so the 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 psalm here 90 psalm 95 it's it's just filled with and pouring out all of this genesis and exodus and and leviticus and numbers all of these things and so when we read the phrase rock of our salvation it means something it's not just a figure of speech there's a story that right after, in the book of Exodus, right after the people of God had gone through the waters of the Red Sea, there in, in Exodus, and in Exodus 17, what happens is they're, they're in the desert, right? And so they're thirsty, kind of like I am right now. <laughs> they want a drink of water, but there's no water there. And so the people get mad at Moses. Why did you bring us here? Why did you, you're going to kill us. We, would, we should have just stayed in Egypt. At least we had water there. And God tells Moses to do something. You might remember Exodus chapter 17 and verse 6, which is the key detail. He says, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock. Now listen, I Yahweh himself will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of all of the elders. And so Moses did this, and they called the place of testing and quarreling, Massah, Meribah, and that's the story. And that's what we're intended to read when we read Psalm 95, this rock of salvation. This is the rock of our salvation. Yahweh stands on the rock. And Moses, he tells Moses, strike the rock. And what does the rock do? The rock pours forth water for the people out of the rock, bringing life, bringing sustenance. Elsewhere in Scripture, Deuteronomy, Moses in his, his famous song, the song of Moses, he sings this song where he calls God the rock of his salvation, remembering this, this incident. 
And so God is the rock of salvation. How? By, by providing life, by providing water, by providing manna in the wilderness space. We could go on and on and on. There's so much more here. I mean, I could talk more about the, the different rebellions against all of what God is doing, but ultimately, what the author of Hebrews is getting to here by quoting a psalm is saying this, that the psalm wasn't just about our ancestors in the past. This psalm is for every generation of the people of God who have yet to enter the Sabbath rest. And so he, he issues the, the call, the call of Psalm 95 of today, as long as it's called today. And let me ask you, is today called today? Yes. So you have hope of the promise of true Sabbath rest. You have full hope. And that's incredibly important for the, for the readers of Hebrews, and it's incredibly important for us because we get lost in the wilderness of life too, don't we? We get lost in the troubles. And what the author is saying is if you don't listen to His voice, if you harden your heart and you rebel, where the, the, the whole design of, of this Old Testament and, and for us and, and the, the wilderness narratives in, in the Torah, it's all trying to tell us that the promised land itself is a picture. It's an image about this ultimate future Sabbath rest that's beyond. And the author of Hebrews says they didn't go in. They never found it. They never got the rest. But he says in chapter 4, verse 3, for we who have believed enter that rest. We come into it. The previous generation, they all died in the wilderness, but we who have trust in Christ, we who have faith in Christ, we enter that rest. Just as God said, and He quoted, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And then He says this, although His works were finished from the foundation of the world, verse 4, for He has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. He quotes from Genesis 1. And God rested on the seventh day from all His works. Do you see what He's doing here? He's sees Genesis 1, which says that God rested. And that's His rest. But then he reads Psalm 95 and says, but here God's saying my rest is something yet to come. So, so which is it? Did God rest in the past? Or is the rest to come? Is it yet in the future? And so he draws the conclusion in chapter 4, verses 6 and 9. He says these words, since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. And then verse 9, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. He says Sabbath rest is yet to come. Wait a minute. But in verse 3 he said, For we who have believed enter that rest. Which is it? It's something you enter in the present by grace through faith in Christ which will come to its ultimate fulfillment in the future. It's something that God did in the past in and through Jesus. It's something we enter in the present by faith, by trust. And it's something that's yet to be fulfilled in the future and so we have hope in the midst of a wilderness world. 
And since it still remains for some to enter that rest, since the people who formerly had the good news announced to them didn't enter into it, thinking about, again, the wilderness generation, through Psalm 95, God is, as it were, renewing the call. Today, saying through David, long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. And he tells them this in verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest... God would not have spoken of another day later on. And here's an interesting twist. Because I think the author is kind of winking at us here. The word Joshua there, in the, it, it, this was written in Greek. It's the word Jesus. Anybody know what that means? Jesus, right? Yeshua, the Hebrew word for Jesus. Yeshua, the Hebrew word for Joshua, it's the same. <laughs> So he's going back to who was Joshua. He was the one that God had lead the people into the promised land. Moses couldn't go in, right? Joshua leads them in. Joshua is a form of a type of Christ, as, a, as, a, as pointing to Christ as a Savior leading his people into the promised land. And so I think he's kind of winking at us here saying that, that Jesus from way back then that led them into the promised land, that's not the Jesus that's going to lead you to ultimate rest. It's the risen Jesus. He's the one who's opened up the Sabbath rest for the people of God. And therefore, let's strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. He lays it out to them. He gives them a great overview of the Old Testament and the, these incredible experiences that the people of God had. And he said, listen, You've come in. You've entered in. Don't give up. There's rest to come. You have Christ, and in Him rest now. Keep your eyes on Him, and don't give up. And so he reads the Old Testament. The author of Hebrews reads the Old Testament in a way in which the ultimate Sabbath rest is still something that we're waiting to fully experience. Our Christian lives are a journey towards the ultimate Sabbath rest. And the one who not only brings us there, but the one who himself is Sabbath rest, who is the fulfillment of this rest, is the one who stands before you today and says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And so where does that leave us with how we walk this out? It leaves you with trust Christ. Trust Christ. Now, very quickly, for time's sake, how should we practice Sabbath rest? Um, and I just want to say two quick things about your own days and then the Lord's day. Because there are practical, this is also a practical invitation because we haven't come into the fullness of Sabbath rest yet. There's this practical understanding of Sabbath rest that is an invitation even today for the people of God to, to practice while we wait for eternity, if you will. And what practicing aspects of the Sabbath rest means, it, it, well, it, it, it's an understanding of time. Sabbath has to do with days, right? Sabbath was a day. 
and time itself is a possession, right? We, we speak of it that way. You spend your time. You lose time, right? You speak time as something you possess, but, but whose is it? Who does it belong to? And see, because we put things in our calendar, pick up my phone and add an appointment there for, for, for Wednesday at 3 p.m., I somehow lead myself to believe that that's my time. And it's not. We are stewards of God's time. And every second is, is His that He gifts us with. And so the blessing of looking at the Old Testament Sabbath is woven into the lives of the Jews are these rhythms of time, all in patterns of seven, the, the weekly Sabbath, the monthly annual rhythms of Sabbath, teaching the Israelites that their lives and their time were not their own. And their whole existence as a people of God is dedicated to the purpose of becoming holy. Be holy as I am holy. And so practicing these aspects of Sabbath rest is a way to renounce autonomy. To say, I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. And so I am God's. God is the master of life and the master of time. And only He will provide perfect security and peace. And I'm not to get all worked up about it. And a part of that then is the gift of the Lord's day. The first day of the week. We do see, and then there's a whole other lesson to study on is it the Christian Sabbath or not, and there's a lot of debate and question about that. Let me just say this, that principle precedes and informs practice. That if you can understand what this gift was given to the people of God, then you'll be able to start walking it out. If not, you end up doing what the Pharisees did. And just creating a bunch of regulations and laws. And, and Christians have done that throughout the centuries. I just heard a, a story the other day of a, a Scottish pastor who, in the midst of northern Scotland, who was, uh, he would walk to church uh, you know, every Sunday and, to preach and, and, and do his, his uh, lead to worship and such. And, and during winter, and it was snowy and icy and cold, he thought, man, I, I live right next door to the, to the river and the uh, church is right next door to the river where the building is. So he put on his ice skates because he was a good skater and he skated to church. And when he got there, after the service ended, the elders immediately called a meeting <clears throat> to castigate him on, was that work or not? How much effort did you put in? And then here was the main question it came down to. Did you enjoy it? Because if you did, the, the Sabbath is a gift. The Lord's Day is a gift. And in no way, if, if, if our hearts are in any way feeling some kind of a, 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 a pressure to, to not enjoy this or, or to, to work ourselves. Now, there is inconvenience to it, right? There is inconvenience. You know, we got kids. I, you know, we're getting up. I know, you know, Ruby, you're back there. You, there's inconvenient, right? It is. And even that inconvenience is supposed to remind us of something. You're not your own. God says, give me one out of seven. No, give me all of it. But dedicate one out of seven to worship me. To remember that I'm your sustenance. To remember that you were slave to your sin and I bought you with my own blood. To remember that He alone is your hope. He alone is your rest. So rest in Him. One last thing. 
One of the things I love about what you see in Scripture and how the Christians began worshiping on the first day of the week where, where the Sabbath was the last day of the week there on a Saturday. And, and again, I'm not one to believe that you know, people... You say, well, does it have to be Sunday? Because I have, I have several friends who their church meets Saturday night, which would be, actually be still appropriate because it would be considered a Sunday. Depends how you look at it in the Hebrew way. But it, can they, is that against the law? Can they not do that? There's a, a, some friends at a church in Dubai they worship, they gather on, on Fridays. Why? Because in that part of the country, that's the one day everybody has off. If they tried to meet on Sunday, nobody could come. Sunday's a work day. And so it's principle over practice. The point is, if, if we receive this gift as a gift, let's rest in, in the gift that Christ is for us. Rest is trust. Rest is joy. If there's no joy, there's no rest. Rest is peace. The goal of the Lord's day is about God. The point of the Sabbath is a dress rehearsal for a future eternity of glad rest in God. And listen, it's not written on our calendars as much as we are built into its calendar. I wonder what would happen if we approached the Lord's day with such a mindset. To have rest for our souls to feast upon the Word of God, to set apart one day each week for rejuvenation in God, not for whatever, but for worship, for community, for, for mercy, and then for going home and taking an afternoon nap and gathering with your family around the table and eating some wonderful food with, with laughter and tender words and and prayers of thanksgiving for reading and for thinking and for gazing at the beauty of creation for remembering remembering you're not your own you belong to a very very gracious and kind